Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Anna David here with, well, I don't know what to say, you guys. I got Mark Marin to do this podcast, and I'm pretty freaking excited about that. I was excited when he said yes. I was excited while doing it. I am still excited days later. Um, you know, in short, I, I've known him for a while, but let's face it, it was, a, it was a really cool favor sort of for him. I don't want to say that. Maybe he was super excited. Maybe he saw this as an opportunity. You never know. You can't actually read people's minds despite my continuing belief that I can. Um, anyway, so I got to go there. I got to be in the fabled garage. I got to see all the, all the stuff that's been immortalized now on his IFC show. Marin, if you are not watching it, that's dumb of you, and hopefully you are watching it. I, I believe a new season premieres in May, so catch up on the old ones. They're all on Netflix. Yep. And so, yeah, we had a really good chat about uh, drugs. Uh, yeah, drinking. We talked about drinking. We talked specifically about cocaine, both former fans of the drug. Um, we talked about recovery. You know, that guy can talk, and he is articulate as hell, and the best thing I could do, I, I found, was to just shut up and just sort of let it happen. Not always easy for me, but I did it. And so if you are listening to this, I find it highly unlikely that you don't know who Mark Marin is. But let's just say you stumbled on this and you're terribly confused. Oh, well, I'm Anna David, first of all. Let me do that to help your confusion. I created uh, the After Party Group, which is a website called After Party Chat, as well as this podcast, After Party Pod. Um, I've written some books. One of them was a New York Times bestseller, so I I like to lead with that, but yeah, I don't know. Extended list ebook that counts. I'm just telling you. Uh, Marin and I kind of got into that. His book was more of a bestseller than the book I'm talking about that I did, and he was sort of trying to toe the line of it doesn't really count, so whatever. It counts. Um, Mark Marin uh, hosts the immensely popular podcast WTF. He is the star writer and uh, producer, and I believe this year director of the IFC show that bears his name. He has been doing stand-up for decades, and uh, he's a best-selling author, as just discussed, and um, he's a great guy. So with that, I'm going to stop talking and give you Mark Marin. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God, I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal, I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. 
I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? So I've heard you talk um, slash read you quotes of yours about, um, you know, sort of getting into the Coke, the Kinnison, maybe like a. Like staying up for three days and sure. like Coke psychosis? Is this, this all accurate? Yeah, I had Coke psychosis for a while. Lasted about a year and a half. No, it didn't. Sure. What What exactly is Coke psychosis? Well, you well, was of, it for you? Uh, well, it's you kind of have some sort of manic break because of the Coke in a way. You start uh, kind of becoming a bit delusional. And uh, however far your brain cracks open is just you know, however long it takes to close it back up. Uh, is, I guess, different for everybody. Were you aware that you were in some sort of psychosis? Not really. I just thought I was like um, kind of in, in tuned, that I was uh, seeing things, uh, you know, the sort of uh, machinations, the behind the scenes of reality. I kind of, I, I had a deeper understanding. Right. Yeah. Well, so it's also, so it's kind of like when you're on cocaine and you were like, oh, I get that they're spying on me from across the, you know, a little, the street. With right. The a different version of that. Like I got into a very mystical, paranoid kind of conspiracy place. Right. And my brain just ran with that. I'm not sure I wasn't prone to that to begin with, but the vibe of it, you know, the, the sort of, it becomes sort of a world view. So right. if you're in it long enough, your brain kind of thinks that way. And it right. took a long time for it to really go away completely. And, um, yeah, I had a shrink once that told me about um, some client that she – I mean, I'm, I'm sure she wasn't – whatever. She didn't tell me the client's name um, who did ecstasy, just ecstasy, and went into such a psychosis that she thought she was at a Halloween party when um, a cop came and arrested her. And she was like, great costume. And then she went to a j- jail. She was arrested. And she was like, oh, my God, this is so realistic. It's like yeah. you made your house like this and completely like – and went into an institution after that. For how long? I think she said life. This was definitely a scare tactic on yeah, her part because right. I had um, relapsed on ecstasy. And I was like, oh, it's ecstasy. It's no big deal. And yeah. then that story came. You and did on ecstasy? Yeah. Well, when I, I got sober and I had six and a half months and then I went out for a night. Oh, yeah. And drank and yeah. then ended up doing four and a half hits of ecstasy. Yeah. Yeah. How ecstasy you... never did that much for me. Yeah. It just makes you feel wobbly, right? It's kind supposed to make you like roll into people and touching and like. Yeah, I, I got that. I, I did it right at the beginning when it first came out and uh, I didn't do a lot of it. It was okay. But so, and so how did you first get into the drug thing? Well, I think that all my heroes were drug addicts. So it was only a matter of time. I was fairly cautious when I was in junior high and high school. I, I sort of aspired to it, but I, my parents were not very forbidding necessarily, but I don't know how I didn't get that fucked up there was a lot of guilt involved and there there right. were sort of hippie not hippie but a little hipper parents in terms of permissiveness but for some reason i think i was just scared so it wasn't until yeah i you know, i drank a lot you know i did a lot of drunk driving and a lot of blacking right. out in high school but i never did the you know I, yeah actually so junior senior year i tried you know coke and speed and other shit but it wasn't until I got to college where I really got a little too into the coke. And then later, you know, when I was out here after college and things kind of got, I got a little untethered and yeah. then the struggle began. Yeah. I think the first time I got sober was 1988 after I left here out of my mind, had to wear, you know, pinky rings and certain shirts to stay safe. 
Uh, Wait, that's where my brain was. That was that part of the psychosis? Yeah, there were skulls involved. Everything had to have a skull on it. Oh, like everything you wore? Yeah, and my <laughs> rings. Yeah. And yeah. you went to and you went just went to meetings and No, no, I went into rehab because oh, I I really hit a wall. I came out. I went back. I went home after LA. I got a new passport cuz I, I was on the run. <laughs> and uh I checked into a month-long program and then I never went to meetings. Yeah, that doesn't I, uh, work, huh? I don't know, you know, it was weird. I it didn't it just didn't click at all. So it was I'd go to the meetings, but I didn't understand really why I was there necessarily. Yeah. It was sort of like school. And but I stayed sober for probably about 14 months. And then eventually I just didn't. And uh that happened a lot. I mean, that happened a lot. So if I got sober the first time in 88, 2014 now and I'm coming up on uh what 15? Is that right? 99, 2009. Sounds right, yeah. Yeah, 15 this year. So it took me, you know, since 1988. So that's 98, 2008, like what, 20, 25 years? And 26 you, years you to get You do like 15. a year? I would. I'd get like anywhere from nine months to a year and a half. And then you, what would happen? You'd just be like, you know what? These people are crazy. Or No, I mean, I would go and then I'd not go. And then one day I'd decide to have a beer, smoke some weed. I mean, it was usually that kind of, it was never like the kind of relapse that you hear about. Right. It, it was in the just rooms. It was sad. a slow build again. It wasn't even sad. It was like, I just started drinking again. And I, eventually it would get to a point. Um, and then I, uh, you know, because once people know you have a problem and you've cleaned up before, right. they be, they bother you. Right. You mean the people that you got sober with or your other friends? No, like, I wasn't. Why are you doing this? Well, just sort of like, you know, you know, you have a problem and I'm like, I'm okay now. Right. But like, I never got that out of control. I never got as out of control as I was in Los Angeles with absolutely no job or no nothing. I was in, in the way my life was set up. I didn't have to do anything. Right. Because I was living in the house that Mitzi owned behind the comedy store. I didn't need that much money. And I was hanging around with real hardcore freaks. So right. it took me a long time to build up to that on my own. It took me, you know, up until 1999 for me to get really out of control and really scared. And I was married and, and miserable and my career was in the toilet and I was doing blow maybe Wednesday through Saturday and going out on the road and really getting hitting it pretty hard. And right. Started, uh, you, you know, it was just... Like, I, I always sort of kept my life together and was functioning in the work I do, but it was, it got, it just got ugly and it felt like I was going to die. Right, right. And depressed, right? Like, after doing coke for three days, don't you kind of want to die? I guess, you know, I, I think I just sort of learned how to live with that. You know, if you smoke enough weed or you drink or you kind of take a few days off, I guess I was depressed. I probably was. It's hard for me to identify exactly what the hell I was thinking. I, because you know, you're sort of out of your, you're out of sorts all the time, right? Because I was right. a, a pretty daily weed smoker too. So you sort of, you know, with one thing or another, you're just kind of always out of sorts. You know, booze and blow for a few days. That that gets, yeah, you kind of hammer yourself out. You get pretty sick. Well, what's interesting about you is I really do feel like people are divided into like potheads or coke, you know, sort of speedy people. You kind of are equal opportunity. I like jacked up. I, you know, I don't like. I guess you're right. I am. But I, I liked um, I liked smoking pot every day. I liked drinking the least. Yeah. Uh, I liked Coke, but Coke and booze was really good. They're a good combo. Yeah, and I, I certainly would have liked crank more. The few times I did it, I, I liked it, but I knew it was very taxing. 
And it was, right. you know, I don't, I eventually like to sleep. Right. And, um, dope was not my thing. I smoked heroin a few times, snorted a few times, but that was definitely not my thing. That I snorted it once. It was the most incredible feeling I'd ever had. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just like, I felt the lightness of it, but I like to be up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like to be able to walk around and shit. Oh, I think it's it's overrated. Yeah. Well, so and and did you see did you have any idea that you were maybe medicating sort of issues or did you have any concept of like why you were doing it? Well, for a long time it was just me living the life that I I respected. Yeah. That you know like we're out there man, we're pushing the envelope, we're you know, we're on the edge and whatnot. I guess it was medicating. I don't know, you know, I don't as time kind of unfolds, I don't believe I'm a depressive. I have anxiety problems. Right. So I think that, you know, Coke was sort of maybe had a Ritalin effect, you know, with the confidence and sort of jacking you out to that place. And weed, like, you know, if I miss anything, it's that. But um, but I don't think about it much. I guess I was self-medicating. We're all self-medicating, but it's more just to feel sort of regular. I don't feel yeah. like I was depressed. I just, I was in a, I was living a life that was not hinged to anything. There was no structure to it. There was no way, you don't, there was no, um, career that you could design really. There was no, right. it was all up to you. And I don't right. know that I, I could really, I don't know that anyone's really prepared for that. Either you have that kind of mind or you don't. Well, but like clearly you do. No, I do. But so like for me to live like that, would you, like, I don't right. know what I would have been like if I had to go to work every day. Right. You know, I mean, it, I don't know what that, how, how long I would have lasted. Right. But the life I chose for myself sort of had enough room for that shit uh, for, for years on end here and there. I think ultimately when I look at the work I did high, it was not as good, but, and I can definitely, you know, I performed on most drugs and I got to talk. I'm not just playing music. Right. So, you know, you sort of, uh, you, I never liked performing stone that much. Right. I like the social element of, of being high. I like being stone and walking around and talking to people and thinking. I liked Coke for hanging out and talking. Pot, I like to walk around and just see things in a different way. Booze, I think, just kind of came along with the, kind of went with the Coke. You know, I don't, you know, like, I'm not the, I just never a guy, I only like to drink all day. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I, like, if I drank, you know, before one or two in the afternoon, I was pretty fucked if I didn't get blow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I was going to say is I think that Coke with people who have anxiety can act as a sort of, it has some bizarre. Like Ritalin. No, it does. Well, it does the opposite of speeding you up. It's sort right, of. That's what I mean. Okay. That's what they use Ritalin for, for ADD and, and hyperactive kids. They yeah. give them Ritalin for the opposite effect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. And so, and like pot makes anxious people in general, I would say, like think too much and kind of, I would smoke pot and I would just sort of be like, oh my God, nobody understands what I'm talking about. And this is just so weird. I, I would have serious paranoia. I got past that. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, you know, gotta work well, through it. Well, yeah, you, you know, because you start to realize like no one's thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. And I just like I smoked pot, you know, all day long, you know, and I was just high all the time. It was just like I would I remember I had a little pipe. I still think I have some of my paraphernalia, actually, that, you know, I, it was just this little wooden pipe that I would duck into phone booths in New York and I'd grind up all my pot real fine mm -hmm. so I could do one hits all day long. It was before the pot got really good, but it was just a maintenance thing. It was just. This is like cigarettes, which I smoked a lot of as well. I see. I tried at a certain point. I was like, "This cocaine habit is too expensive." I am an addict, so I'm going to try to switch to a more economical thing. And I tried to become a pothead. And I remember like smoking pot and going to get a manicure. I'm like, I'm just going to do normal things, and I hated it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> 
Time Warner. Oh my God, this woman will not leave me alone. Who's the woman who won't leave you alone? Are you kidding? It, say? She's a comic, and um, you know I just don't know what to do with her really. You know, and I just made the mistake of saying, um, you know, maybe we can do the show. And I just, I don't know really what to do with her. Right, right. Um, but it's okay. So, yeah, but pot and coke is not great. No. So, and so then, and so you only went to treatment that one time. I did. And then, and then the time that, like, the recovery really took was, did you say 99? Yeah, 99, I got it. Yeah. And what was different? Well... I and still it take it took me years to really understand powerlessness. Yeah, and it took me years to really understand the idea of a higher power and how that could be useful if you were going to go that way. Right. I mean, what it took for me is that I was in a, a, a bad marriage, and I was like hiding a lot of drug use, and I was really, you know, I I just got that mindset where it's like you know I'd almost rather die. Yeah. Because I can't see I don't have the balls. To get out of my situation. Right. And you then, mean both with drugs and your marriage? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I didn't know how to, like, I, I just was doomed. I didn't feel like I had any choices. Right. Um, for a lot of reasons. Guilt, addiction. Um, fear. You know, fear of, yeah. of hurting somebody and all that business. But then, you know, I met and, you know, she approached me at a comedy club and was like, you know, she's stunning. And she's like, you know, I, I'm, you know, you're Mark Marin. She said, aren't you Mark Marin? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? And like, I'm a big fan, you know? And she was like, uh, kind of up in my shit a little bit just as a fan. Yeah. Which was flattering. And she was gorgeous, you know? And I'm, and she's like, well, I could help you, you know, get sober. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. Hey, hey. you know, it's like, I, I understand what's going on now. With that? It's a truck. Yeah, I assume you they come by all the time, right? Yeah, um, you know. So, so that was like the ultimate twelve-step call. You're like, okay, if you have long legs and are really hot, I'm gonna listen. Well, well, but the weird thing was, yeah, there was that. I was sort of stunned. Yeah, uh, that because she was, you know, a very spectacular-looking person, but she was also like 23, and she had like I followed her home. You know, I got I kind of locked in. I wasn't sure about the sober thing. But right. I was pretty sure that I wanted to be around her. Right. So, you know, I remember that first time that we met, you know, I walked, we walked like blocks and blocks and we were, we were both talking about quitting cigarettes and she had just quit cigarettes for, at that time. And, you know, I remember we went up to her apartment and I bought a Foster's, I bought a big can of Foster's and I bought a joint up there. And I just sat there in her apartment and drank a Foster's and smoked a, 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 a joint I was like, so what do you got? What are you going to do? How are you going to help me? Right. You're going to tell me about God and whatever. So the combination of me sort of becoming fairly quickly obsessed with her and also the fact that, you know, she was, you know, she was like, we were going to meetings. I mean, she was, we weren't really having an affair initially. Right. We, you know, I was just like, I wanted to be around her. That's so, where she was going. Yeah. So she would take me. No, yeah. she, I mean, she took, she did good AA work. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I was like, what, 35, but, you know, we were going to meetings. She was showing me the ropes. She was telling me shit. Yeah. I mean, there's shit that she told me in that first, you know, few months that I still use today that have, you know, really have stayed with me. She made the program comprehensible to me because I was incredibly um, 
angry and consumed with, with all kinds of panic. And my brain was spinning all the fucking time when I first got sober with a lot of future fear, a lot of, you know, guilt, a lot of um, self-loathing. But the whole, the brain was on fire all right. the time. And, um, you know, I was constantly in touch with her. You know, there was meetings we would go to. I, I quickly built sort of a group of dudes, you know, yeah. that we were all kind of in touch with. And, and she had she had already been sober a few years and had a relapse. So she had been through some shit. Right. And she had lost a, a boyfriend, a fiancé, to drugs. Oh, who OD'd. Mm-hmm. So that was heavy. Right. So, like, she, like she, had had, she had this amazing story. I hope I'm not talking out of school here. No, I didn't know any of that. But here's the weird thing is I used to go – I know you from, from a right. meeting, right, yeah. that she would go to. With me. But you never sat together. And so then when she wasn't there, I guess I, you would share – I would hear you share about the divorce. I had no idea. that. Like I don't think until your podcast I actually understood that that's who you had been divorcing. Like I had no idea you two even knew each other. Well, you know, there was. it's like tricky, you know, when you're with somebody yeah. in rooms and you go to the same meetings. Like, you know, yeah. how, how much do you want to do? You know, how, you know it's yeah. like you want to have some – well, you know, it got bad. And, you know, obviously – it was fairly doomed because, you know, in retrospect, y- y- you can't really manage that. Like, I didn't know anything about codependency. I didn't right. know anything about my own emotional trauma and my own chaos and what I was expecting out of her. You know, but I knew I didn't want to lose her, but I left my wife. Right. And, yeah. And that blew up. And that was a lot for, for her. And, like, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how she would take me talking about her. But in the sense that, like, we don't speak and I haven't seen her or talked to her in, you know, seven years. But but the bottom line, I guess, whether you, you know, take out the name or not or whatever you're going to do. But because um, I don't want to out anybody. But I think it's relative. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe. I don't know. We can take it out. You know, I mean, like, I I, I mean, wrote about it. Yeah. you And you talk about it regularly. You know, yeah, I've this... talked about her in a long time because like it's weird. But this is a recovery based. Yeah. Thing. Well, I don't you know, I don't want to talk out of school and like, you know, betray someone's anonymity. But but that is my story. Yeah. 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 And and, and um, was that Foster's and like joint the last drink? And no, you no, had? no, oh, okay. no. It, I struggled for months and, you know, it took us months to, to sort of like, you know, un- in get involved yeah. in, in a romantic way. But she did get me in the mindset. I yeah. slipped a little bit, you know, for a few days here and there. You know, I went through a few sponsors very quickly. You know, I ended up landing on one that was kind of a nutbag, a real, a real fucking lunatic. Right. And, um, but she got me in the groove because I just wanted to follow her around to meetings. Yeah. And then, you know, once I started to sort of plant myself, you know, I was, you know, I became part of, there was a circuit of meetings I would do in New York. And I would do them every day, sometimes two times a day. Yeah. So she really locked me into that. And she was very vigilant about it. And I respected her sobriety a great deal. And, uh, you know, to this day, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. You know, despite whatever went down with us otherwise, and no matter how she feels about me, um, you know, and how ugly it may have gotten, the fact remains that, you know, I still, like, remember things that she said to me in that first six months of sobriety to get me out of the thinking and you know and i still use them well yeah and this is not to say that she didn't tell you great things but i still remember stuff i heard my first six months too as the most because it's like the first time i heard you know what you know like of course my mind is going totally blank but these things that were just revelatory well yeah for me. me it was really simple like you know what color are your shoes you know like if i was oh, spinning yeah. 
you know, it wasn't really book stuff. It was really just sort of practical, you know, weird little things that she had heard. Or right. you're just like checking in with the space you're in. Right. You're trying to, you know, the compulsive sort of you know, running the serenity prayer as a mantra almost to cycle through to get to sleep. You know, like mm-hmm. actually taking the action of prayer, even though you know, I, I don't I still don't really have a belief in God. But I, I am a, I am capable of some faith. And an understanding that I don't have power over most things. Right. And I can usually live with that with a certain amount of, of comfort and not too panicky. I don't identify my higher power, but I do have some um, you know, peace of mind around that. And then you know, sort of the, the, the idea of insanity that you know the uh, once is never enough and thousand too many, once is never enough, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah and, and repeating the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. A lot of that stuff. But... I don't think I fully understood powerlessness. I think that for the most part, my early sobriety was just about winning and that, you know, I was going to win that when I was counting days with dudes and I'd see them, someone go out. I'm like, I ain't doing it, man. I'm not going to give up my day count. I mean, really, it was almost that competitive. I don't know if I really processed a lot of the program for years, but I knew that I wasn't going to give up my fucking day count. Right. That's where the, yeah, the ego, the alcoholic ego, whatever can like really do some good. Yeah. I was in it to win it, man. Yeah. And after a certain point, there's no fucking way. But then like, you know, fortunately, you know, the obsession got lifted, you know, within a year or so. Yeah. Really. You know, I didn't, and because I was with somebody that was sober, um, you know, there was even when I got the obsession, you had immediate dialogue. Yeah. It was like having a sober companion all the time. Right. Right. And, and that, you know, it saved me. I don't know that I would have been sober. I don't know what my life would have looked like without her. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about the obsession getting removed is the weirdest part because it just happens. Yeah. And suddenly this thing that, you know, you were totally convinced was going to rule your entire life is not a problem, but you've got all these other problems. Like you thought, for me, I thought I had one problem. And then it's like, okay, the good news is that's not your problem anymore. The bad news is like you actually have a lot of things to deal with. Well, the the thing was with me is like, you know, I would fight the little nuts and bolts stuff uh, of sobriety, but I ultimately came to believe the disease model. Because, like, is a disease of the mind, body, and spirit. Yeah. Because, like, obviously they say, well, if you need outside help, you need outside help. But, you know, I sort of fought that idea that, you know, that the that alcoholism was genetic or whatever. But at a certain point, you know, I started to, to really sort of buy into the idea that, you know, just let it be alcoholism and treat it that way. Yeah. And, and sure enough, a lot of the stuff that used to plague me characterologically and and, and mentally and emotionally, you know, over the period of years sort of went away. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's by virtue of age or necessarily sobriety, but I've always been pretty active sobriety wise. I don't, you know, I don't really sponsor people because I don't think I'd be a lot of times I just don't, I don't have the time to do it properly. Right. And I'm like, I, I'm pretty codependent with that shit. I don't know. I don't know what I have clear boundaries around this stuff. I have sponsored a few guys in my life, but I, I don't. Um, that that Danny Trio episode of your show was yeah. that based on anything that was real? No, that was based on you know, the the original idea that I had years ago was the opposite. Was that uh, you know I was the neurotic Jewish guy who was trying to get sober, and I would pick an old jailbird as my sponsor. Yeah, but you know that well, that's based on anything. Yeah, that it's sort of based on a guy who approached me at a meeting after I spoke and was like, you know, uh, you know, can I have your phone number? I'm at a halfway house, you know, and I gave him a ride back to the halfway house, and I realized like. I don't know if I can handle this. Right. 
And, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. No. You know, I said, yeah, I can be your temporary sponsor. And you can certainly call me. But, you know, it wasn't that. So it was a little scary, but it was just so out of my league. So, you know, so that 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 is sort of what the Danny Trejo episode is, is based on. Yeah. Is that the weird because that happens in the rooms. Yeah. You know, you're going to be in that situation. You're going to be in situations where you're you're helping somebody whose life is completely different and maybe way more frightening than yours was. And you can help them. You know, you the great thing about the program, about sponsorship and about the nature of talking to another alcoholic is that that's your context. You know, you don't have to lend them money. You don't have to give them relationship advice. You don't have to give them anything other than your experience around alcoholism and, and the book. Right. So, like, it's a real good lesson for people who are alcoholic and usually codependent as well to try to, you know, to work within that. To learn how to help people with a, with a rule book. Yeah. With a context. Yeah. And 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 feel what that feels like. Yeah, but I mean, there there we're not given a ton of guidance about sponsorship, and I've seen it and had it go awry, like on so many, like just a bunch of different crazy women. You know, I now have a great sponsor, but like, you know what I mean? Like, what what I think is cool about you and the guy at the halfway house is that you knew, like, what the problem is when people don't know that they can't actually be helpful, and they're like, sure, I'll sponsor you, mm-hmm. and they're they're not helping anybody. Well, I always thought the like I never really became a drone. You know, and I never really became a service junkie and I really never, I was never like, I never sought to like my hole that I was filling with drugs, you know, was also being filled with, you know, a very compulsive, um, you know, career choice and and a very active mind. And I was always very busy and I was always writing my material and stuff. So there was a lot of stuff filling that gap. Right. So, you know, I would do service, but I would make it about me. I remember I had a, a cake commitment uh, years ago out here when we first moved here and I would because I am a, you know I have a lot of free time as a comic I would bake the cakes well, yeah, at that meeting that we used to go to I would bring stuff you brought muffins <laughs> yeah. and here's the funny thing this is a, that's a total... ego though it's all ego okay but okay well here this is a compliment that of to your ego mm-hmm. is that people would go oh yeah 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 like Mark Merritt he's so funny that guy and like you were not funny at all yeah. in the meeting i'd be like that guy who brings the muffins is the guy you think is so funny which is i, I mean which is just that you weren't trying to do shtick you were actually being real which i think plenty of people have trouble with yeah i, I you know i can do shtick sometimes and sometimes i do but like aa has been there for me in some of the darkest times i've ever had and like in there have been many so you know i can do shtick and depending on what's going on with me you know, I just try to be as honest as possible and I try, I don't, I, I had a long time, it took me years to really figure out how to contextualize it uh, into, you know, recovery, like, new, you know, LA recovery, you know, more, more so than not, you know, the uh, framing what you're talking about in, in recovery talk is important. Yeah. And at some point I learned that, Yeah, that, you know, it's like, I started to hear what frustrated me in the rooms. Yeah. Like, I don't mind people checking in. But, you know, it's the same thing with sponsoring. It's like, bring it around to where's the sober message. Even if you're not comfortable, you know, it's sort of like, you know, end it with, you know, I'm not drinking today. Right. Something. Right. Right. So, but I've had problems with that, too. But the cooking thing, you know, I wanted to do service, but I also wanted people to like my muffins. And, you know, I've set up chairs, you know, I've done coffee commitments. But, like, as I got longer into sobriety... I went through several sponsors because of what you were saying, too. Yeah. My first sponsor, when I was losing it, 
with some guy that you know had a lot of sobriety. I don't know what happened to that guy, but like I remember, I'm like, "Will you be my sponsor?" And he's like, "Yeah, me and my guys usually meet." I'm like, "Oh, you got guys? <laughs> I'm done." So that guy lasted about a week. Right. And then I asked some old dude at the old Al-Anon house in New York, which was this really old meeting. Like there were people in that meeting that knew Bill, and you know, right. Like, and it was an old clubhouse, and I and I met some guy Louie, and he was just sort of real matter of fact, and yeah. that was the other lesson. It was sort of like you know th- this is just about drinking. You realize that, and I I tried to be like, well, what do you? It was all about drinking, and you know he had a weird accent. I don't know where he's from. I liked him, but he ended up dying. Um, and then the the sponsor I had that really helped me was out of his mind. It was like this dude that everyone hated. He had like 16 years sober. He, when he would speak at meetings, people would be like, oh, shit, this guy. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to be, that's my guy. Like but he's, why? Because I saw it as him, like he's still an asshole and right. he's sober. So right. he knows how to stay sober and keep his personality. Right. So like, I'm going to go with that. And, but he was really nuts, but he made me write out steps and he, you know, I would call him and he was unemployed and, and, and an ex comic. So I would call him like nine times a day, right. just would, wigging out. Yeah. He'd take and he'd be calls. like, and he'd be like, you know, are you fucking? I'd be like, yeah. He's like, good. Keep fucking. Right. And he's like, are you eating? You should eat ice cream. Eat, do whatever you want to do right. other than drink. Just knock yourself out. Right. It's not great. You know, it, but I wasn't going to listen to anything else anyways. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's pretty helpful for a newcomer. Yeah. You know, just like do, just fill it, man. Just fucking fill it. Like, well, what about the relationship in it? You know, no relationships in here. Good luck with that. Right. You know, what, what are you crazy? Are you Who the <laughs> fuck does that? Who the fuck is capable of doing that? So this was a guy who had like not gotten laid his entire sobriety. No, no, he got laid. Right. But he but, hadn't had like an intimate relationship. I don't know. I, it was just that, you know, his approach was, you know, just, just don't drink. Yeah. You know, bounce off the walls all the fuck you want. Yeah. You know, go as crazy as you are. Just don't drink. And, you know, I stayed with him a long time. And you got somebody now? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, my guy now is great. I mean, I met him from my other sponsor. I met the guy I'm with now, like, fresh out of a mental institution that he was in. Yeah, he went into nine years sober. That's hardcore. Oh, shit. And, uh, you know, he didn't become my sponsor for a long time. Like he moved out here and he was, you know, involved with a woman and he had, he had a lot more sobriety than me. And then he sort of hit a bottom out here and he stayed at my house. And we, but now like the, he turned his whole fucking life around. This dude is, you know, he's now a therapist and, you know, he's got recovery in three or four programs and he's married. He's got a kid and he's solid, you know, and like, so I got all areas covered. He's got, you know, double digits in DA and Al-Anon and in, uh, and then AA, and, and he's a therapist. So I'm like, uh, weirdly, I think I know who this is. We don't have to say. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I tried. Fucking threw my ex wife under the bus, but we're going to, you know, <laughs> we're, we're going to leave Steve him. out of it. Yeah, why, oh, I do know who he is. Yeah, I mean, why? But he's he's in the business of this. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well, the weird thing with anonymity is like, right. if you're publicly, you, you know, it's, it, I don't know, it's, I guess it's always a bad idea, but I, I'm just like, I don't, I'm not of the belief. I don't think that tradition necessarily is as binding as it used to be. Like, I won't bring up other people, but I'll be public about myself. And I guess the fear is like, well, if somebody listens to me or I'm their role model and they go out, then the program gets blamed. And that's ridiculous. That is the most ludicrous argument. And I hear it all the time. How like how would somebody think like as if people don't know that people in AA go out like everybody's like that. That argument. I think it's really just to protect the program more than anything else. And that I understand. I mean, I recently got an email. Well, I mean, I people seem to feel totally comfortable emailing me like their issues with how I handle anonymity. So I'm imagining many people do it to you. I have no idea. But like, you know, just like I don't think it's right that you know, and and that same argument about like if I real, I know you think you're invincible to relapse is what this person wrote. It's like. 
I never said that. Well, I try to qualify it with, you know, this is my experience. I don't speak for AA, but it helped me. Yeah. Because, like, you know, there's a lot of people out there, you know, especially because I have an audience of people and the type of show I do, you know, that need help. And I've helped a lot of people. I will always answer emails that are alcohol related. I'll always, you know, guide people to the program. And then there are people that are like, fuck AA. Yeah. You know, there's other programs out there. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what they are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whatever that is. And though, you know, the success rate for AA is very low. It's like, yeah, but... It's it's better than nothing. Well, and also like like if anybody knows how it works, there's just like nobody's taking a survey. Nobody, there's no there's no way to tally the success rate. No way to tally the success rate and the idea that it's a cult, it's all voluntary and like the I remember one time I'll never forget it. It's like some kid was sharing and he said, "You know, I told my sponsor I didn't want to be brainwashed, and he told me that my brain needed washing." Yeah, mine sure did. <laughs> That was one of those ones I heard in the first six months. I was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, yeah. But like you take some of those things out in the real world and people are like, wow, man, you're a genius. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I, I just repeated. So some toothless guy said this one. Well, yeah, the, the one, another one that I heard that I never heard again that, I, that I'll share is that one about how uh, someone told me that um, uh, alcoholics are the elite of the mentally ill. <laughs> and I think that's brilliant because it's like we are because we actually Get to are self-aware. Around. Yeah. And, you know, we, we it's a voluntary, you know, solution. And a voluntary diagnosis. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's funny because I just listened to the Lena Dunham episode where she says, is that thing about the definition of insanity is doing the same thing? Yeah. Is that an AA thing? You're like, yeah. But I've, I I never heard that in AA. I heard that in other I don't places. think it is an essentially yeah. an AA thing. But it's relevant. Yeah. In life. But that's where I heard it. Right. Right. You know? Um, and I don't know where that definition comes from. And I don't even know... Well, I think it applies to to, to alcohol, but oh, you know, sure. but but really the the greatest gift of of it all is you know really understanding powerlessness. Yeah, and you know, and that was the biggest trick. You know, when I first started coming in and seeing that word, I'm like, man, so what the fuck does that? What does that mean? But as a concept, to accept powerlessness is um, it that that's the real thing. I mean, that's that's what's going to get you to it. Yeah, to, because it applies to anything like that. That idea, the idea, which I think, I guess, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm no AA head in that way, but that's the key to the whole thing. Yeah, is in, and it's something you have to determine yourself. It's like you know when people say, "I don't know if I'm an alcoholic." I'm like, "Well, look, if it's not fucking your life up, yeah, then knock yourself out." Yeah, and it's that moment where you don't, where you sacrifice your will to whatever it is. You know, gambling, sex, food, booze, drugs, whatever. Where you do not have that control and you, right. and you realize powerlessness. Like, I got that thing. And that's another thing that she used to tell me early on that, you know, the first step is the only step you have to work perfectly. Right, right, right. And I was like, and that stuck in my head. Yeah, that blew my mind when I Yeah, heard. because like I, I wasn't and I didn't know what that meant, but I knew like that was in my head. Like, work it perfectly. Like, even before I got it, I didn't get it. Right, right. It took me years. To, to really sort of lock in and understand the power of the steps. Well, and not to mention, like, this whole thing about, like, okay, so the obsession gets removed, so therefore we've sort of done the third step or whatever. And then realizing, I mean, me, I'm 13 and a half years sober, and, like, realizing how, that I was not doing the third step in my life at all came last year. Um, turned our will and our life over? Yeah, yeah, just, like, that I was still trying to control everything. I totally surrendered on drugs and alcohol but i like right. i didn't really believe like god had some better plan for me than right. i had for myself i didn't right. really i was just really not not doing it anymore yeah i for me it was like you know and i've started to go down on recently because i hit a bottom with that and oh, and, that's, and that's tricky yeah that's tricky business but that's deep shit 
Yeah. And, you know, it, that's hard stuff. Yeah. You know, because, you, you know, with, you don't, you know, if you don't drink, then you're doing it. Right. But you can't live without people. Right. And you can't, you know, and that, the type of like insanity that comes from thinking you can control or change or, 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 you know, somehow protect or take care of uh, other people that, that refuse to do it for themselves is right. just a fucking train to hell. Yeah. Yeah. But the powerlessness applying that to other things in your life, like I, in, in terms of working a third step, you know, I, I'm very comfortable with the idea that like, like I can say now, like, you know, like I, I, there's nothing I can do about that. Right, right. You know, there's just like it's just out of my fucking. It's just out of my abilities. Right, and I'm okay with it. Like you know, when, like when I get into future thinking or into panic, because I do do that. Yeah, or I get like I used to be real sort of cynical and and doom and gloom, but I just don't like. I don't know if it's by virtue of the fact that I'm busy or that maybe I've gotten a little more self esteem over the years or that I'm older. But I got I have a real hard time, you know, thinking about tomorrow, and like yeah, I don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah, and. And like, you know, sometimes I don't know until I check my schedule. Right. And that like, seems super healthy. Kind of. Yeah. And, but it's a little panicking where you're like, oh shit, I got to leave town for a week. No, but that's amazing. Tuesday. That's like you're being in the moment or something. Right. It, it's, it's a lot of stress, you know, yeah. to, that's not there. Yeah. You know, and, and, and obviously, you know, I do prepare for things, but I, I am able to sort of let go of a lot of that stuff. I'm still fairly angry and, and hypersensitive and a little dry at times. Uh, but you know, I, I you, you know, there's you know, more will be revealed, revealed, you know. So, and in terms of like the external stuff, like I, I, I've heard you say you like you took like Wellbutrin, maybe briefly. I mean, I took it years ago. There was a period there where I was trying to quit smoking, and you know, I thought that, I that's on... bullshit. That doesn't really help with that. I tried. I, well, that. I'm, you know, I'm still strung out on nicotine and caffeine, and and you know, and and I'm like, it's weird because with coffee, it's like I'm at that point, like you know, where you get with booze, where it's like my body doesn't want yeah. it anymore. Yeah, but my brain can't. You know, neither of them. Right. Like my body's like, I think we're kind of done with this. It's not, yeah. It's not taking us anywhere good. Yeah. But I can't get out of the habit. Um, yeah. But no, I I did Prozac for a bit. And uh, years ago, and it helped me get through some stuff. But you know, I was—I went for a psyche valve, and you know, I got a generalized anxiety diagnosis. And he, you know, because my dad's bipolar, he—he—he he, he didn't give me Lexapro; he gave me uh, Lamictal, and and that seemed a little dicey. And did I you en- take it? No, I ended up like you know ending the relationship I was in, and a lot of that went away because I don't believe I'm depressed, and I believe that my anxiety is manageable, and I am a little stubborn with. You know, like not even so much working a program, but accepting who I am. Like I don't, I'm not debilitated by whatever the fuck it is. But and dysmic, I don't take medicine right? lightly. Dysthymic. Dysthymic. That was what you got, right? Or is I don't that think before? anyone uses that anymore. Right. But it means depressed, right? It means like a, a sort of chronic mild depression. Right, right, right. But I don't, I don't believe in retrospect that I was ever, you know, patho, you know, sort of chemically depressed. I right. think that I would become overwhelmed very easily. I right. A, I, I don't have a, a great ability to compartmentalize. So everything sort of happens at the same frequency. And when you're overwhelmed, there's a sort of surrender there that I think is like a depression, but I don't right. think it's fundamentally depression. Right. And the food thing, I, I having just peed in your bathroom, I saw you have a scale. Nobody I know keeps a scale because it would make them too insane. Yeah, I don't usually use it unless I'm trying to lose weight, like unless I'm feeling fat and I need to know exactly sort of where I am. There's a like right now I'm I'm pretty lean for me because I went on Weight Watchers for a few weeks. I just like I really have uh, uh, un, uh, I don't have a lot of recovery um, around food. Now, it's a really deep issue for me because I was brought up by a, an anorexic person. 
and you know like i i manage it like if i stay within a certain weight i'm okay but if i get if i get heavy and i feel heavy i just want to sh- you know, i just want to claw out of my body yeah i feel like a sense of worthlessness yeah and 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 sort of like invisibility that is is brutal but you know so i just i'm just trying to stay healthy um yeah my mom is also like very like 99 pounds yeah so like right. same my mom's thing. 116 i win yeah. my mother's 411 yeah. so my I know. mom's 57 okay yeah. we're talking yeah. <laughs> but um um wait I, I there was something important i was going to ask you oh yeah yeah so okay one thing i was going to ask you about the sponsoring thing is like don't you think now there are people with like ulterior motives like do you get like does that come up sometimes people are like hey yeah i'd love to i'm a comic and i could use your help like you know i really you know i i try to steer people in the right direction i will talk to other alcoholics i will listen i will do a lot of things but i'm fairly careful about you know who i let my life in in a general way right like i don't have a lot of people in my life on the daily rotation and yeah there, there's some of that and i've and i've encountered that before but not with sponsees you know the few sponsees i have a couple of them drifted away they all sort of drifted away but you know my first sponsee is still sober and he's he's kind of a nutty guy uh, you don't live here, right. but, um, you, you know, I, I really think it's just everything like I, I, I'm always overwhelmed with stuff Yeah, and you know, I might be able to find some peace, but I really think to properly sponsor somebody, you need to give them the time necessary. And I know like there's a lot of sponsors like, Hey, even if I don't answer, just keep calling and stuff. But yeah. that wasn't my experience. You know, my experience is a dude that was available yeah. and, and drove, you know, and I just, I, you know, maybe it's, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm not prioritizing my sobriety. Maybe I'm not. Yeah, I find that's where I, where I like at the times in my, the most crisis I, is where I go to meetings the most. Yeah. And when I'm busy, eventually I get brittle, but I have been going a bit to, um, a few Al-Anons and I got to get back into the loop. I go to the tropical in the morning sometimes, yeah. but I don't have a regular thing, but I, I, I talk to other alcoholics quite a bit. But what I'm curious about is like how the success has changed your recovery, if at all, like you seem to be like super humble about it all. Is that work? You know what I mean? Like suddenly, suddenly like you have like, you know, like legions of women who like send you like shit and like want to sleep with you. And then like suddenly like this thing that you hadn't you know expected came well along. the thing about it is with me yeah you know, I, I guess I, I i think i am humble but i also know that you know part of my isms was you know a sort of like weird defensive arrogance uh, right. to, to guard my insecurity so i'm very wary because i know that i can get pretty obnoxious pretty quickly so i try to stay humble you know and close to the you know play you know, and, and just as grateful as possible. And a lot of what happened for me, you know, I was really at the end of my rope. I didn't drink, but, you know, I was pretty bankrupt and I was broken hearted and, and my career was in the toilet. And I think that what happened more than anything else, and I went to AA a lot yeah. during, during those dark periods because I had to. I was, I was in suicidal ruminations and, you know, right. not in a good place. But right. I never thought about drinking. It was never. Right. right. Never. Yeah. I, I, I thought about suicide. Yeah. And I, cut out the middleman. Yeah. You know? But, um, but, but ultimately what happened was I had to, I really had to get right sized, like really like, you know, not like just sort of like think about it or, right. you know, you know, what does that really mean? Like I, I really had to assess where I was at in my life and, and, and let go of shit. 
So, you know, that and that happened before the success. So, like, you know, yeah. I realized, like, you know, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do with my life. I know what I don't want. And, you know, I don't really know what I can or can't do from where I'm sitting. But I know I got to kind of keep keep going. But I, I was like, I gave up on the idea of being a relevant comic. I gave up on the idea of ever having a TV show. So a lot of the jealousy went away. I'm like, you know, it's just not my life. Yeah. And at some point, as a grown-up, you can't live in a fucking dream world. So, yeah. so it's sort of like, well, this is my life. And this is what I have. And, this, and, and let's try this thing. Yeah. Without any expectation. And with thoroughly letting go of these other dreams, which was heartbreaking. And I was already heartbroken emotionally because my marriage fell apart. And... And then I started doing it and these other things sort of came around and like, I don't, you know, I don't really check my numbers. You know, I don't really, you know, I don't really listen to the podcast after I have the conversation in here. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not real aware of, you know, I can see people like me on Twitter, but I'm not aware. And I see the emails coming in, but most emails I get are, I get a very unique type of sort of like, you helped me out. You know, I was in a dark place, you know, you know, made me, you know, you, you know, you, you, I'm thinking about a lot of things differently, like really kind of thoughtful shit. Yeah. Cause I'm putting it all, I'm putting myself out there. Yeah. So that the fact that that became successful, that whatever the hell I didn't hear, which was, you know, as true as I could be, which was not, you know, trying to be funny, but just trying to, to be me yeah. and be present and process this sit, this stuff publicly was where my success came from. So the amount, the validation and the self-esteem that came from that validation because I was being genuinely, genuinely myself was very humbling and, and gratifying. So ultimately what happened because of this outside of anything else was, you know, I, I achieved something that my, that the self-esteem was, was probably deeper than I could have had if the opportunity had come from another place. Right. Right. It, it seems like, you know, like I can look at what I've done, you know, and I think as a creative person, you know, really what you want is to be relevant and, and to be part of the public conversation. You know, you want, you, you want to make your mark somehow. Yeah. I mean, you can tell yourself that like, you know, hey, I just enjoy doing it or it's about the process or whatever. But if you're driven that way, you want to be you want to you want to make your mark. Right. You want to be relevant. Right. So all of a sudden out of nowhere, you know, this podcast you know becomes relevant to a lot of people. Right. And then a lot of people are like, you know, I listen to it like people I would never think listen to it. I have no idea. I don't I don't know. My audience is like anywhere from, you know, 13 to 75, 80 years old. Right. You know, it's like I say it's more of a, a disposition than a demographic. But but like within my industry, people enjoy it. Yeah. And so like and it all just happens here. And 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 I'd never really set out to interview people. You know, I just talk to people. So, and that's not, and that's not, I'm not being falsely humble. Yeah. It's just what I do. And I, and I still do it the same way for the most part. I have a fear of redundancy or, or it tiring out. But on the other hand, you know, that happens, you know, and there's another thing you have to accept that you have a window where, you know, you can ride your ride. Right. Well, some people's windows are 40 years though. Yeah. But like, I know that I've created this catalog and this, this legacy of things that are fairly green. You know, they're evergreen yeah because i don't date anything and just getting into the nuts and bolts of being alive as opposed to pop culture was a big step for me yeah getting out of politics was a big step for me so 
the humble thing. Like, I'm also a very anxious person. Like, you know, like, I, I, like, why don't I buy a new house? Because that seems overwhelming to me. You know, now, like, I'm thinking about adding on. But even that, it's like, ugh, what, what for? I don't even know what to do with the second bedroom. Like, getting a new car. I don't, what, what am I going to get? I mean, that thing's okay. You know, like, clothes. Right. I don't buy clothes. Like, I, all the clothes I have right now, thank God, I got from the wardrobe for my TV show. Or I wouldn't have gone shopping. Right, right, right. <laughs> Someone bought them for me. So my anxiety and the fact that you know I have some success and you know, like in that I'm earning an honest dollar means a lot to me. That that, yeah. that that what I'm earning is directly proportionate to what I'm putting in the world. No one's giving me money, you know, on spec. Yeah. I don't like that, and that's a lot of show business money is like that. I'm yeah. weird like that. Even when I wrote the book, they gave me too much money, and I, I didn't really even want to write another book. And I knew that it wasn't going to make its money back. And I'm like, all right, I'll take it. But uh, you know, I ain't never going to get a deal like this again. But right. I, I didn't feel great about it. But I'm like, fine, you know. I'm but it was gonna... a bestseller, right? I mean, almost. You know, it made it you know, that first week it was out. It made it to like the the long list, like twenty four, twenty five yeah, on the yeah, long that, list. That's, that's all. No, it did all right. Um, and the paperback's coming out now, but you know, I'm happy with the book. But all this stuff is sort of gravy. It's just like the the good thing about it, about the TV show, and about you know the comedy special. It's like you know, I'm not operating at a level where you know I have huge mainstream success. I have a very specific success based on the people that that get me, which is fine in the culture we live in now. You know that they can find it. Right. But but the the thing the other thing is like I can show up for this shit. You know, I've been around for a long time and I've had a lot of opportunities over the years that I just, you know, demanded and, you know, spitefully pushed my manager to get. You know, I've had, you know, I've had script deals. I've had, uh, you know, I've, I've had, you know, opportunities where I shot things for hosting positions. I mean, I had powerful management. I was always in the mix, but nothing stuck. Right. Because I really wasn't ready. And I was just like, you know, why does that guy get that? Why can't I have that? And I never really had a, a very well-defined uh, public personality. People are always like, he's neurotic, he's angry, he's political, he's this, he's that. And I would just be like, am I? What am I? So I think ultimately what happened over the last five years was that I kind of arrived in my body. You know, I am, you know, as true to myself as I can be. And, and you know, and, and that's still evolving. So I'm, I can show up for this stuff. Yeah. And like, you know, to, t- to get the opportunity to do a TV show, to write uh, and and produce and you know this last season I directed and acted in a show with my name on it. You know it's not it's not on NBC but it's IFC and I got a lot of freedom there. But I'd never done anything like that. I never wrote for a TV show. I never really acted. Right. Certainly never produced. Right. And you know so but but because of AA because of sobriety and because of the success that sort of occurred on my own terms. You know I knew how to show up for that. It's like look I'm I'm gonna do the best I can. I don't really know. A lot about this, right. so I'm gonna kind of trust you guys. It's a collaborative right. effort, a worker among workers shit. Right. I had a real, it was, but it was a real humility. I wasn't pretending. Right. I was like, you know, I, you know, if, if any of you guys, you know, tell me how to do this better, I'm open. Right. 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 <laughs> and you know, we, we we I think we created a good first season. I think the second season's better. But like, it's all, it it was something I never thought I would do, and I got to do it on on my on you know really pretty much on my own terms. Yeah, I'm not making millions of dollars, but I'm making a living and I yeah. got health insurance. Yeah. That's not nothing. No, not at all. <laughs> um, I think this is awesome. So what can I say, guys? Did Mark Marin not say it all? Well, listen, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a review over on the iTunes and tell your friends. We update this every week, every Friday morning. There is a new after-party pod, and we are excited to have you download it.